Well, we are continuing in our series uh, called A Thousand Generations. Uh, could be one of my favorite titles so far of, of our d- different uh, Bible series. But as we look at Acts 2 today, Acts 2 is about the birth of the church. It's about the birth of the church. And the reason that I think this text is so important is because here in the West, we are in a crisis. Around the world, the church is flourishing. If you look at uh, the, the Asian church, there is literally a revival going on in the underground church today. In parts of Africa, the church is just exploding. The gospel is moving, and Jesus will build his church, but here in the West, we're in a crisis. This year, statistics tell us that over one million young people will leave the church. And the number one reason it says uh, that we don't... Uh, that they are leaving the church is because they don't find the church and the message of Jesus compelling enough. We're talking about in this series how to pass on the unsearchable things of God. And Dane did a great job uh, the f- last week and the, and the week before of talking about these things. And we're talking about passing on the unsearchable things of God, but I fear that we have also redefined what the unsearchable things are in the West. It's no longer about the power and presence of the Spirit or the compelling story of God or Jesus Christ and Him crucified or sound doctrine. We've settled for an offering of an individualized, relevant gospel that the rest of the secular society is also offering. And so they're leaving the church. And as a result, Jesus becomes no, more, no longer compelling, and his people aren't either. It's not about sociological issues or justice issues or ultimately what the world needs is a resurgence of church communities that have a deep knowledge of one another and an intergenerational church communities that gather because they know what they believe. And that's where we're going today. I think we need a resurgence of church communities that have a deep understanding and knowledge of one another because they're in life together, and we need a resurgence of intergenerational communities that gather because we know what we believe. Amen? We know what we believe. And here's the reality is, uh, Jesus never promised to build the church that you and I want. He promised to build his church. Amen? And Acts 2 is the blueprint of the church that he is building. It's the blueprint of how you and I cultivate an understanding of what it means to be an intergenerational church. He's building. And how will he restore our intergenerational relationships in the church? It's the blueprint for how we are to recover what church is all about. Throughout the Old Testament, Israel is described as God's vineyard or a tree. Or planting. You could find that in Judges 9, and in Isaiah 3, Jeremiah 12. But as any Israelite knew, the first fruits of the harvest belong to God, which then helps uh, conceptualize their relationship to God as their own special planting. And they were called to yield special fruit as his covenant people. And then we see in the Old Testament Israel's faithfulness, literal or otherwise, is not the basis of their relationship with God, for it is God who gives fruitfulness. And we see in Deuteronomy 11, a lack of fruitfulness is a sign of God's curse 
or rebellion. And then in Acts 2, what we see is the power of the Holy Spirit poured out on all generations who now share this power and the ability by the Spirit to bear fruit as God's covenant people. But the blueprint that you and I see in Acts 2 is that our fruit is not just meant for our flourishing, but for the entire church community's flourishing. And so the question that I want to ask us today as we think about how do we cultivate an intergenerational church is does your fruit show up in other trees? Does your fruit show up in other trees? This is the generational imprint that God intends for each of us to pass on from one generation to the next. And as we are invited into God's missional, grand, worldwide, global, cosmic story, his strategy, as we see, continues, not begins, but continues and is actualized in the New Testament church in verse 17. So if you would turn your Bibles again to Acts chapter 2, verse 17, I want to read this again for us. And in the last days, it says, it shall be, that God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see dreams or visions. And your old men shall dream dreams. The first blueprint that you and I see in Acts for how do we cultivate this kind of church community is empowerment. Is empowerment. Peter is preaching here, uh, who the same guy who denied uh, Christ to the teenage girl at the fire. You guys remember that story? Uh, he went on to preach this sermon uh, in the city center, and 3,000 people got saved. But you think about what, what made the difference. What made the difference between a man who would look a 13 or 14-year-old girl in the eye, and as she asked the question, do you know this man, Peter, in fear, crumbles and says, no, what makes a difference when fishermen, who are a bunch of knuckleheads, are then become the foundation on which God uses these people to then go and bring the gospel to the world and become martyrs for their faith? Because when you have the fullness of God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, you are empowered to be a bold witness of God. That's what changed. And so Peter in his sermon here, as he's preaching in boldness and in power of the Spirit, and we witness what empowerment means, he's quoting the prophet Joel in chapter 2, 28, verse 32. The first, but, and the first and main theme of the prophecy from Joel is that God is going to pour out his Spirit upon all people. So this isn't new news. This is a, a, a coming to fruition, a coming to fulfillment of the prophecy that Joel, chapter 2, gives us. There's no more division. It's going to fall on all kinds of people. And in the book of Numbers, Moses, you guys, some of you might remember this, Moses was exhausted from leading. So the elders were appointed and filled with the Spirit. And they prophesied when some were distributed by this change and complained to Moses, he responded in Numbers 11, if only all the Lord's people were prophets and the Lord would place his spirit 
on him. And so what we see is the thing that Moses dreamed of, the thing that Moses longed for, is now actualized in the church in chapter 2, verse 17. God has equipped his people for the work they are to do. And in this point, Peter is not saying that every believer in chapter 17 has the gift of prophecy. Rather, what he says, when he, what, he, what he means is when he says that all that young men will have visions and old men will dream dreams is there is a carrying out. There is a participation in the mission of God that, that has to do with young and old and rich and poor. And the carrying out that is being done through Acts 2.17 and what he's talking about is going to be carried out in an intergenerational community of believers who live into the fullness of God because they're now in empowered by the Spirit. And it's in that fullness he's calling young and old to dream new dreams and see new visions of how all flesh can be drawn into the experience of Christ. I love what John Stott says about the Holy Spirit. He says this, he anoints the messenger, confirms the word, prepares the hearer, convicts the sinful, enlightens the blind, gives life to the dead, enables us to repent and to believe, unites us to the body of Christ, assures us that we are all God's children, leads us into Christ-like character and service, sends us out uh, in our turn to be Christ's witnesses. In all of this, the Holy Spirit's main preoccupation is to glorify Jesus Christ by showing him to us and forming him in us. And a lot of times we hear about people having dreams and dreaming dreams and casting vision and having vision and turning, but it, the reality is that it's because of this sort of individualistic mindset that we've taken as a church as a whole that turns us inward, not outward. And the problem is that when we do this, we have to ask who is actually sending us out and what power are we going in? Power requires character or it causes damage. The safety of a church of all generations who is intergenerational is a people who share in life together and are building trust that reflects the New Testament's church's call to a ministry of reconciliation and trust that can call you out when your competency doesn't match up with godly character. That's the safety of an intergenerational church, is that when you and I dream dreams as young people, we can go to those who have been around the block for a little bit and say, hey, I got this, this vision from God, I think at least. Can you help me understand what this could be? Or was it just a bad burrito last night? That's the safety of an intergenerational church. Imagine a church community that dreams dreams and visions from all ages on how to submit to Christ and honor his name. That's what's happening in verse 17. It's a church, it's a community empowered by the Holy Spirit who now has the ability and power to dream dreams and cast vision on how all flesh can submit under the authority and lordship of Jesus Christ. 
It's no longer one prophet to lead us. It's Jesus, our prophet, our priest, and our king is all we need, empowered by the Spirit. In the Old Testament, although believers were uh, indeed regenerated, the Holy Spirit came upon special people for special ministries at special times. He still does endure special men and women for special tasks, as we will see, but now his ministry in verse 17 is wider and deeper than it ever was in the Old Testament. So what then is the difference between the Old Testament days and ministry today? First, it's all believers of all flesh now share in the blessing of the Spirit. We share in the blessing of the Spirit. Knowing that we are forgiven, we're empowered to, to greater obedience And now the dreams and visions that Joel and Moses longed for, we can know. What we need to understand is our roles as an intergenerational church. So what I want us to understand is that elderly people want legacy. Young people want destiny. Elderly people want legacy. They're looking at what mark am I going to leave? What am I going to leave behind? And young people are asking, what's my purpose in life? How do I know if I'm in God's will? How do I know if, I, if my life is going to count for the sake of Jesus and the gospel? In other words, the older members are concerned with what they will leave behind, and younger members want to know, what does my future hold? And if that's the case, and if that's the longing of everyone that's represented in here, then I think Asaph in chapter, Psalm 78 gives us a good picture of what this could look like for you and for me. You can turn there or it'll be on your screen. Psalm 78, verse 5 through 8, it says this, that he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel which he commanded our fathers to teach and to their children. And the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. And they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. And the question is that Asaph is asking is, what are we passing down? Now we're in the Bay Area, right? Does your schedule reflect we won't forget the law and the works of God? Do you have kids? Does your schedule reflect we will not forsake the law and the works of God? We will not forsake the gathering of the saints. Are you an empty nester? Does your schedule reflect for the next generation and the generations to come after that? We will not forget the law and the works of God. In other words, God won't give his power to a generation that doesn't have the character to carry it. church, I got to be honest with you, as I'm preparing this, 
I really, there's just a huge conviction that I'm coming up here with. I think we are powerless right now because we've put down the book for a cheaper and easier version of Christianity. We've put our schedules before the Lord's day. We've put career over character. It grieves me. I've done this in my own life. If we're going to be an intergenerational church, it's, it's time for us to step into this and to say no more. Here's what this looks like, though. And here's the beautiful thing is we're not left alone. And in Acts 2.42, he gives us the idea of what this looks like, the blueprint for how we can cultivate this kind of beautiful community that God calls us into. So chapter uh, 2, verse 42 again, and I'm actually going to read through 47. Verse 42, it says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, And then listen, listen to this. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together in all things in common. And as they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as they had need, and day by day attending the temple together or church together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food and glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And then look what happened. The church explodes and the Lord added to their number daily, day by day, those who were being saved. Now, that word devoted uh, in the Greek means to be devoted to, to attach oneself, to attend constantly. It's our devotion that makes everything possible. It's about commitment. It's about frequency. It's about what we are attaching ourselves to. And I love what Ray Ortland says in a quote here uh, that should come up. He says that when the early believers converted to Christ, it never occurred to them to fit into the margins of their busy lives. They redefined themselves around a new immovable center. He was not an optional weekend activity along with kids' soccer practices. They put him and his church and his cause first in their hearts, first in their schedules, first in their budgets, first in their reputations, first in their lives. They devoted themselves. That the Holy Spirit, this was evidence, unmistakable evidence that the Holy Spirit was being poured out. And in result... The church was pushed back on. The church was what we see pretty close afterwards, after this pouring of the Spirit, is our first martyr. Now, there's a picture that I want to show you guys that I found this week. Uh, that's, it's a little intense, and so I get it, okay? But I, I wanted to show this to you because this is the kind of devotion, intergenerational devotion, that we see in Acts 2. You'll notice, I tried to put an arrow there. There's kids in that. 
There's people of all generations. And see, when the Spirit empowers you, it leads you and it drives you to devotion. When the Spirit came, it drove them to devotion to the Word and to each other. And that's what drives us to this kind of sacrifice and surrender. That says, you could kill me. I will not stop saying the name of Jesus, the only one who can save. Amen? These Christians, martyrs, they had an accurate view of God that fueled their witness to be bold for God. We need an accurate view of God. That word teaching can also, and when he talks about in in verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. The word teaching can be translated devotion. In other words, they devoted them, or uh, sorry, the word teaching can be translated to doctrine. My, my fault. Uh, and other, they, de- they devoted themselves to sound doctrine. To sound doctrine. The next key to cultivating intergenerational community of believers is that when God empowers, he leads us to devote our lives to sound doctrine. When God empowers, he leads us and drives us to devote our lives to sound doctrine. The early church wasn't content with meeting just once uh, in a while. They practiced these things and met daily because they knew something. They knew that the resurrection of Jesus didn't just change church events. It changed the way they do all of life. And for them in the early church, this wasn't just... This wasn't an event, it was a culture, it was a way of life for them. The things that are most worth living for now and forever are the things that will demand our whole life, our whole being. And when we think about formation, formation is repetition and shared practices that's interlocked with other people. So if we're going to devote our lives to understanding the scriptures, to understanding what it means to to balance ourselves on sound doctrine, well then also we're going to have to repeat and repeat and repeat. And what the scriptures are telling us here is that they did this together, that their formation and their transformation was interlocked and coupled with each other. And there's a movement today that says, I can, go to ch- I, I can be a Christian, but I don't need God's people. Well, maybe you'll squeak into heaven, but what the scripture is telling you and, and me today is that our formation, our becoming more Jesus-like in what we do in all of life is interlocked with one another. Notice this wasn't devotion to a quiet Bible study. Now, I'm not knocking Bible studies because I do it too. But our church will not experience the fullness of God in our lives if we are not devoting our powers of thinking to understanding the facts and accurate information of the doctrines of Scripture. We're not passing on experiences. We're passing on faithful living under the word of God. Second Timothy, 
Paul reflects on Timothy's faith. And you guys might be familiar with this verse. He says it in verse uh, 5 in, in 2 Timothy 1, I'm reminded of your sincere faith, Timothy, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother, Lewis, and in your mother, Eunice, and now I'm sure dwells in you as well. Timothy is not Timothy. You guys get what I'm saying? Without two generations of faithful women devoted to sound doctrine and to the faithfulness to pass it on to Timothy. To bring him into the fold. To bring him along with him. This is why I, I take my daughter to my Bible studies. Or with me to Alpha. This is why I take my son to different events. Not because I'm babysitting, but because I want them to be a part of what God is doing. I want to pass on a legacy of faith. I want to pass on a legacy of faith. Listen, the destiny of those precious children behind us in that beautiful new building that we have relies only on the preaching and teaching and devotion to God's word and our participation and submission to devote ourselves fully to getting right the doctrines of God that alone have the power to shape and form our lives, our fellowship, and our ministry effectiveness. I love what John Tyson says. He says, the doctrine you put forth will determine the discipleship of your church. There are a million ways for us to make ourselves known as the people of God. That's why in the Old Testament, it was all about the requirements of the law, the ceremonies and the celebrations and what they were doing during the day, going to pray at different times of the day. And there's a million sociological practices we could do. But no, God says that they will know me through my word and through you. And so third blueprint for cultivating an intergenerational church is power, presence, and practice. Power, presence, and practice. Acts 42:42. they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and with fellowship and breaking of bread and prayers. Now that word fellowship uh, literally means shared participation. Shared participation. Shared participation, a kind of devotion that does all, li- does all of life together. They take the sacraments together. That's communion and, and, and baptism. And they pray together. And later it says that they shared each other's goods and their resources. So God isn't done with all the sociological practices for his people. The power of Pentecost, though, has poured out in shared practices. But the difference is that they aren't bound by what they are doing, the law, or performing. They are bound by love. They're bound by love. And this is what makes us distinct. This is what makes us stand out among the nations. And when God finds a people that places priority on his presence, when he finds a community like that, he can make history with it. Psalm 78 again, Asaph says, he says, he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, 
which he commanded our fathers to teach their children that the next generation might know them and the children yet unborn and arise and tell them to their children. The process is simple for each of us, no matter the generation, we establish a testimony by living a life with a split vision, both for right now and for a time that we cannot see. Both for right now and a time that we cannot see. We should be keeping an eye on the future generation while we're also devoting ourselves to the power and presence of the Spirit and to seek his presence and practice sound doctrine. And we do this, church, we do this knowing that we are full, that the full impact of our ministries will never be actualized. And I had to realize this, I mean, after like a decade plus of ministry, I've had to come with grips that the seeds I've planted over the years in people's lives will never be fully known until, at least on this side of, of glory. So we have to be okay with that. Peter, if you think about it, when he preached that sermon, you think he saw 3,000 people getting saved that day? No, empowerment led to devotion led to power, presence, and practice. And Peter preaches this powerful sermon on the day of Pentecost, and 3,000 were saved and the church was born. Does your fruit show up in other trees? What the book of Acts wants us to see in the early church is power, presence, and practice when combined together with every generation and background is an unstoppable force for the gospel in the world today. But a lot of times we, we separate those. We separate sound doctrine with power and presence, don't we? Well, that's that denomination. That's that tribe. That's that network over there. But the presence and power of God is meant to influence and shape our practices and is only fueled by an accurate view of who God is. And it begins with our devotion to the word and to each other. And I think the world is longing for a church that says no more. I mean, we're not separating the two. We're believing that the church is of all about the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit as we commit ourselves to sound doctrine and to each other. Amen? Imagine the change that would make in the Tri-Valley. We can't miss this. Acts 2.44, it says, All who believed were together and had it all in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing proceeds to all as any had in need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. And they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their day their number day by day. Do you see anything about a church, uh, church growth strategy in here? Does it say they committed themselves to programs and formed a committee? 
No, in their devotion to sound doctrine and to each other and in the power and presence of the Spirit, they practiced what God empowered them to do. And they had favor with everyone in the town and they, that they encountered. And God multiplied their impact and their church grew. What's the one thing that changed? Jesus and the Spirit. They have the spirit of God. They have the word of God. And that's why you read about failure. You read about failure. You read about failure. And then finally you get to the church. And it's anything but perfect. Can I get an amen? Yes, thank you. Uh, we stumble. We fall, we fail each other, but the people of God never go back into idolatry and injustice, the twin sins that you read all throughout the Old Testament. The chapter is over and done. The veil has been torn. Jesus made a way, and now we have the Holy Spirit deep inside of us, and that's what makes everything different. That's what makes everything different. But this is rare. It's rare in the modern Western evangelical church. As I said, I'm coming up here feeling convicted, guys. Do you know how rare it is to find apprentices of Jesus surrendering their hearts to the power, presence, and practice of the Spirit in the Word of God today? You guys feel that? Satan is going to use everything in his power to keep that from changing. Satan is going to use everything in his power to make sure the church stays focused inward, focused on individuals, focused on making sure that we believe that church is, is a good idea, but not something to devote our entire whole lives to. Why? Because when a church devotes itself to passing on the unsearchable things of God, to the next generation, they do so empowered and devoted by an accurate view of Scripture, killing their flesh and idols and surrendering fully to the power and presence of the Holy Spirit in their lives. That's a vision I want to get behind. Church, is that a vision that you want to get behind? Amen? That's a vision I want to get behind. And when you see a church do it, that is strong, it's strong, and it's noticeable, and you can't help but to be impacted by it. So church, we need a resurgence of church communities that have a deep knowledge of one another. A church communities that gather because they know what they believe. This resurgence is the church turning from idolatry and repeated, repeating, uh, repenting of their sins, repenting of busy schedules, repenting of not honoring the Sabbath, surrendering our lives not to... Not to edit the scriptures, but to let the scriptures edit and search you and me. We need a resurgence of elderly apprentices of Jesus going first into the battle and saying to the younger generation, come with me and watch and see. We need a resurgence of young people hungry to see the move of God and to take the Bay Area for the gospel. Uh, we need a resurgence of young dreaming dreams and casting vision and ways to fully surrender to Jesus. A resurgence of young and old empowered by the presence of the Holy Spirit to stand up and say no more, no more to putting our preferences over what God says. This is God's word. This is our authority, not culture, not experience, a resurgent of apprentices of Jesus who take up their cross daily. 
and a resurgence of believers who wait together and watch their lives and doctrine until the return of Jesus Christ. Amen? That's what I want to give my life to. That's the church I want to raise my kids up in. So I want to leave us with some questions that I think help shape an intergenerational or cultivate an intergenerational church. So these questions are for you, but they're also for us corporately as well. So what is one thing that is relevant to all generations? I think sometimes we're asking what is relevant to the next generation, but we should be asking what is relevant to all generations. And that's the revealed word of God. Number two, do we have a multi-generational vision of the church? In 1 Kings uh, 2 verse 4, it says that the Lord may establish his word that he spoke concerning me, saying, if your sons pay close attention to their way to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. And what, what, what this is, is David wants Solomon to think long term about the promises of God that the Messiah will come from the line of David. It's this multi-generational vision. So do we have a multi-generational vision for the church? Are we more concerned with getting our preferences actualized in the church than we are passing on the unsearchable things of God? What are those things? Obedience and devotion to his word, a deep longing for the Spirit's presence, a life of repentance and gospel assurance, Surrender to his power to be an effective, faithful witness in the community? Are we more concerned with getting our preferences actualized than we are passing on the unsearchable things of God? How are we devoting, how are you devoting yourself to and practice of sound doctrine and life together involving all generations? Like uh, Pastor Brian said earlier, if you haven't already, this is a great place to cultivate this and to start is a calm group, uh, because this is where this model is really actualized, is intergenerational. This is why we don't have age groups, we have intergenerational groups. Does your schedule reflect this kind of devotion and practice? I, I, my son got invited to play on a traveling team for fall ball. I want it, if you guys know me, you know I'm a bit of a freak when it comes to baseball. Um, I love it, and I love watching him play, and I love watching my, my daughter uh, play basketball. I love them doing good at sports. But he got invited to this team, and we find out that all the games are on Sunday. We had to ask the question, are we devoting ourselves to the practice of sound doctrine and life together? And I, we had to tell him, we're going to honor the, the Lord's day. And God, in his sovereignty, will bring you another opportunity. Um, but we, we had to say no. So does your schedule reflect the devotion and practice? In the end, will fruit show up? Will your fruit show up in other trees? Will your fruit show up in other trees? Father, we thank you for this intergenerational vision of the church. We thank you for the power and presence of the Spirit in our lives. We thank you for giving us your revealed word and so that we can set our lives on its authority. We can set our lives on what it says. And so, Father, help us to be a church that is not based upon experiences. It's not based upon 
programs, but it's based upon an intergenerational community of believers who commit themselves under the word of God to each other by the power and presence of the spirit of God. Lord, as we approach your table, Father, may we do so with hearts and minds set on you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.